Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Welcome to episode four of Run This World, a podcast that features visionaries who are creating change in the world. These are people who are called to share their messages and are doing something about it. People who will inspire you to create positive forward change in your own worlds. The premise of the show is that you will listen to it when you're out on a training run. The average 5K time is 36 minutes, 38 seconds. That's an 1147 minute per mile pace. Each interview will be roughly long enough to get you through your 5K run and leave you with enough inspiration to get after it again next week. Today's episode, called Fearless and Free, features running pioneer and legend Catherine Switzer, who at 20 years old became the first woman to ever officially run the Boston Marathon despite being attacked during the the all-men's race. Today, at 69 years old, Catherine is a speaker, author, and activist for women's rights around the world. We hear firsthand from Catherine about her background as a woman runner growing up in the 60s, especially details about her groundbreaking effort in the 1967 Boston Marathon. We talk about all sorts of great benefits of running physically, emotionally, and psychologically. We do a little detour in the middle and talk about men. You'll definitely want to turn up the volume for this part. And finally, we delve into how her new movement called 261 Fearless is giving women hope, strength, and connectivity, and how you can get involved with the movement by joining 261 Fearless. All right, let's get moving. We have Catherine Switzer. Let's welcome Catherine to the, to the show. Hi, Nicole. It's wonderful to be here and wonderful to reach all of our mutual friends and colleagues out there. I know. Okay. So Catherine, I've known you now for a really long time. So it's really funny to be sitting here talking to you on Skype instead of side by side, sitting across the table, having a good heart to heart. So we're going to do our best to dig in deep. Well, I'm ready for it, Nicole. You know, you and I have never walked away from anything tough. (laughs) And the recesses of the heart are so amazing. (laughs) Hopefully this won't be the toughest thing we ever do. Um, You know, it's funny because you are Catherine Switzer. I just feel like everybody in the world should know who you are. Most of them probably do, but some people probably don't. And so, you know, you don't expect that either. So I don't want to just gloss over why you are a legend, pioneer, uh, women's rights and women's running advocate. I think we need to start by talking a little bit about what you did for women's running and how you helped put long distance running on the map. So with that said, I am going to ask you to kind of dig in a little bit here to your, your athletic background, your running, where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Okay, of course, Nicole, when any anytime you talk about yourself, it's you know, you feel, oh gosh, I'm I'm a little embarrassed, but here we go. But it, it is funny. Let me just say this. You know, I've been running for fifty-five years. I'm sixty-nine years old, and you know, you think everybody in the world of running knows who you are, knows who Nicole is, knows who Catherine is, knows who Kara Goucher is, every all these different people of different generations. The interesting thing is is that every year produces the next new face, next new generation. And people are all brand new. They have to learn everything all over again about running, what kind of shoes to get, and their heroes and their legends. And so I'll meet women who are all ages, but especially surprising are those who are older, you know, let's say 50, 55, 60, 65, who have taken up running late in life and actually have have never heard of me because you would think that they kind of grew up with me but they didn't because they grew up in their own world of work home family whatever and it wasn't running so so i don't expect people to to necessarily know who i am um but i have to interrupt because this is so funny whenever people hear that i was a triathlete in my life they'll go oh i have a friend she um, has done triathlon. She lives in Wyoming. That's pretty close to Colorado. Do you know her? I, <laughs> I know. I know. It is so amazing. <laughs> Somebody said, oh, you were a marathon runner and you ran the Boston Marathon that time? said, have you ever run it again? And I said, well, yeah, like eight times. Um, oh, gosh. You know, <laughs> so anyway, but here's the story. Um, I was raised um, outside of Washington, D.C., a little girl. Uh, the, the story starts when I was 12, and my dad encouraged me to go run a mile a day to make my high school field hockey team. Uh, that mile a day changed my life. I became an empowered kid rather than a skinny, insecure one. Uh, made the field hockey team, loved to run, loved all my sports. Um, and when I got to Syracuse University to study journalism, because I, I love sports so much that I wanted to write about them, because I knew I'd never be an athlete, you know, like knew I'd never make a living at it, um, didn't really want to earn a living at it, um, but, but there's simply, it wasn't in, in, the, in the realm of thinking, you know, to, to be able to be a professional athlete. And I knew that for, for girls and women, sports ended after university. And in my case, they ended at university because when I got there, there were no team sports anymore. So I went from high school to this university that, that, that didn't have, has, was a powerhouse institution for men, uh, with, with lacrosse and, and football and baseball and everything, but nothing for women. That, um, since I had been running three miles a day, I went and asked the, the cross country coach if I couldn't run on the men's team. And he was just flabbergasted. And and I guess I look back on that at 19, having the nerve to ask, you know, the coach of a big university if I could run on the men's team. Um, but but I, but running empowers you, and, and I was sort of fearless. So he said I couldn't run officially on the team, but I could come and work out with the team. And when I got out there working out with the team, the guys were absolutely wonderful. And I thought, wow, this is a different kind of sport where guys are really welcoming and they were motivational to me. And there I met a guy who was a volunteer coach for the team, and he was an ex-marathoner. He told me about this wonderful thing called the Boston Marathon. He ran with me every day as slow as I was. He was really old. He was 50. His name was Arnie Briggs. Um, and every day I got, uh, I got better and better and better. We added more distance. 
he would tell me more stories about the Boston Marathon. And when I told him that I too wanted to run it one day, he said, well, that's too bad because a woman can't run the Boston Marathon. And I said, why? And he said, well, a woman can't run any marathon. Marathon is too long and too difficult for women. And I got really angry and we argued and argued. And finally, he said that if I showed him in practice, he would be the first person to take me to a marathon and he would take me to the Boston Marathon. So I became totally focused on this wonderful event. It was like Everest. And we trained really hard. And when I showed him in practice that I could do it, we ran our 26 miles and I said, let's run another five. We ran 31 miles that day. Um, and I was just absolutely over the moon. I felt like I could do anything. My coach passed out. And when he came to, he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. And we had discovered <laughs> an amazing thing, which was that, that, that women were really good when it went long. We weren't especially fast and as strong as the guys, but we could go forever. So he helped me sign up for Boston. And I guess everybody now knows this part of the story, even if they don't know it was me. They know this story. They've all heard the story of the girl who was attacked in the Boston Marathon by the race director, which was when we got to the two-mile mark in the race, um, I was wearing a bib number. We were all wearing our bib numbers, and the race director jumped off the press truck and went after me and tried to rip off my bib numbers and throw me out of the race because I was a girl. And he was screaming and cursing at me. And my coach was telling him, leave her alone, leave her alone. But my boyfriend, who was running with me, who, who happened to be an ex-All-American football player, threw a crossbody block into the official, sent him out of the race, and we went on to finish. Well, the pr problem is, or the, the amazing thing is, is this happened in front of the press truck because it was right in front of us. And those pictures of this incident were flashed around the world and became what is now one of the most galvanizing photos in women's rights history. But we weren't to know that then. We just thought that this guy was a wacko. And, um, and, um, but I became also very determined. I suddenly realized that I had entered the Boston Marathon out of a sense of joy and, and, and triumph um, to run my first marathon. And now I, I had to prove myself no matter what. And I was determined, and, and I told my coach that I would finish the race on my hands and my knees if I have to. So we we go slow down, finish the race, um, and as everybody listening knows, you go through a, a kind of lifetime of experience in a marathon. And and I started thinking about why there weren't other women there, and why didn't women understand how important running was. And it, I suddenly came to the conclusion: it wasn't that they didn't know; it's that they had had no experience, no opportunity to try. So by the time I finished the race, I was determined I was going to become a better athlete and, and I was going to create those opportunities. So the next part of the story is, is my whole life, which is, you know, to finish the Boston Marathon and have your life unfold before you is, is really amazing. It, I, the, 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 the design pattern was really all there. To become a better athlete is the simplest part of the story. As you know, Nicole, better than anybody, um, training works. And if you train your brains out, you're going to get better. And I trained my brains out and I trained up to, you know, 110 miles a week and it took me eight years and 35 marathons. But then I finally won the New York City Marathon and ran Boston in a two hour, 51 minute time, which in 1975 was considered one of the best times in the world. 
But what I what I realized was is that the most important thing was giving women the opportunities because there was a lot of talent out there, a hell of a lot better than I ever was going to be. And I just knew that they needed the forum. So we worked hard. We got women official at Boston. And then I began organizing through um, Avon Cosmetics with their sponsorship. How lucky I was to get that sponsorship. I wrote a lot of business proposals, believe me, and finally got this sponsorship from them. And we created a global series of women's races, which eventually uh, went to 400 races in 27 countries for over a million women. And those races, um, the statistics, the international representation, the performances out of those events, um, we presented to the International Olympic Committee to get the women's marathon included in the Olympic Games. And that was in 1984 in Los Angeles. And as far as I was concerned, that was the event that changed the landscape, that that was giving women the right to vote, if you see what I mean, in terms of the physical acceptance of women um, globally in, in showing the world that they could do anything and that they should be entitled to take part in anything um, that they wanted to. So um, that was was really, to me, sort of I felt like the triumph of my life. And then, as you know... <laughs> As you know, Nicole, life keeps going on and, and things keep needing to be done. Um, and I know we're going to talk about the next next phase of my life, which is is continuing those opportunities globally and, and how we can continue to make change. But that's my background. I mean, um, it, it's amazing, actually, how it worked out. I'm kind of almost speechless every time I hear your story. And I want to dig into every single part of your story because... There's so many things that, that I just scribbled down hearing you talk this time. Just do a mile a day. Just have the nerve to ask. Just take something like um, you said when you were told by Artie that you couldn't run Boston, you were angry. And then you had resolve that came from that. And it's like you're taking these things that people think are negative, anger, and uh, frustration, and you're turning them into something very, very positive that's changing people's lives. I mean, maybe maybe we could talk for a second about just sports in general and how the different things that they bring us that help us take our lives forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anytime you accomplish something, um, it empowers you. And that is one reason why there are more women runners in North America than men. 58% of all the runners in uh, the United States, actually it's more than that, but we have that, that figure, are women. And that's happened in our lifetime, Nicole. Um, and the reason is not because those women want to become Olympic athletes. It's because they feel self-accomplished, confident, and empowered from putting one foot in front of the other. And there are a million physiologists logical reasons why this happens but the reality is is any time in life we do something and then we do it again and we do it a little bit better or we do it a little bit longer it empowers us and that is that is a very very important fundamental thing for us to 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 be able to experience empowerment's everything it's changing in our lives yep yeah you know you're absolutely right and it's like it takes an act of, say, fearlessness, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that. I know, we, we will. And, um, and that act happens, and then empowerment is a result. And then there's something like, maybe it's just acceptance that there's change in the world. And the example I'm thinking of is, 
you know, you said when you were attacked in the Boston Marathon and you guys went home and you th- realized what had just happened and all this and you thought, you, you, you just briefly mentioned, you thought he was a wacko. And I was thinking, well, he thought you were a wacko for trying to run the race. And he was scared that you were trying to change something that existed, which was that long distance running was only for men. So there's this, this acceptance thing that's going on as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, we look around the world and, and even women who are just starting to run today look back and say how things have changed for them. Um, yeah, people need to experience something and they need then to see other people doing it um, to, to, to then understand that they too can do it so often. That, that, that's another reason why this just keep it with women's running here for a second. That is that, you know, we go out and we watch a marathon and all of a sudden you see going by you people of all shapes, sizes, ages, people without arms, without legs, they do anything. And then, then you sit there for a while or stand there watching and you say, my God, if that person can do it, I can do it. And, and you realize that it isn't about being fast or beautiful or sleek. It's about going out and putting one foot in front of the other, and anybody can do it. Also, I must say the other thing about running that's wonderful is that it is very egalitarian. We don't we don't judge people. You know, you it doesn't matter if you're slow or big. You know, you're welcome. We all we all understand the effort. The important thing is, though, we look at the rest of the world and we realize that um, that they're way way behind in giving women the chance. And the reason is the women themselves are afraid. And now, thanks to technology, and this is another thing we're going to talk about when we talk about 261 Fearless, but the technology is bringing us closer and giving us examples. It's giving us a sense of um, hope and like, I can do it too. Maybe I can do it too. Because we all know when we take one step, then we say, if I take one, I can take two. If I take two, maybe I can take four. Any person who's ever run a marathon knows that they remember, they all remember that first mile. So um, that's what we're after. You know, it's um, it's interesting because all of this discussion also leads me to this concept of why do you run? And I was thinking about for you in particular, before that Boston Marathon, you ran for a certain set of reasons. And after that Boston Marathon, did those reasons change and how quickly did they change? Oh, that's a great question, Nicole. And actually, nobody's answered that. Uh, I mean, ask me that before. Uh, before the Boston Marathon I ran, I ran because it really made me personally feel empowered and strong and courageous. I could do anything. Um, it gave me nerve. It gave me uh, guts, you know. But after Boston, it all changed. Sure, I still ran for those reasons. But uh, now I was running for a cause. Now I was running to prove that women everywhere could and should run. I was running to get ideas to create opportunities. You know, it's a very creative process. I craved my nightly hour run in the dark because I could conjure up so many areas of opportunities and, and hope and ideas to work on. Um, and, and, and I kept bashing, you know, my runs. I would say, I know we can do this. I know we can do this. We deserve to do this. It became much more focused in terms of creating equality and opportunities. That's very, very true. And so many people, I think, find that when you're out there running, your mind opens up and you have those amazing ideas. I 
It almost seems fair to say, hey, if you're ever feeling stuck in your life, go for a run. <laughs> That's for sure. If you're stuck on a magazine article or a chapter of a book like I often am, I just say all I need is an opening sentence and I've got it, you know, and you mess around with it. If you just go for a 10-minute run, it pops in your head. Hey, Nicole, here's something else I want to talk about, and I'd like you to chime in here too because you won an Ironman competition. I mean, this is one of the toughest things in the whole world. I won the New York City Marathon in 95-degree heat. That was one of the toughest things I ever did in my life. But here's the interesting thing is, the fascination of what is difficult is really something awesome. And overcoming and getting better is one of the most fascinating processes. People say, wow, you also were a good athlete. And I said, yeah, and I'm a no talent. But if you work really hard, you can get better. And um, after I ran my first Boston, it was four hours and 20 minutes. I took unmitigated hell from people about being just a jogger. You don't count. Anybody can do that. And I was so upset that I tried to become better, not only to because I had a chip on my shoulder, but also because um, I wanted to see if I could be better. And when I did get better, I realized, hey, if I as a no talent can do this, Imagine the women who have talent and don't even know it. So we have to give them the opportunities. But for, for other people listening out there, hey, it's not important that you become a better athlete, but you know how great you feel when you do do something better. And you deserve it to yourself to try harder because it's fascinating and it really, really tells you a lot about yourself. Tell us about you in that when you're training for a triathlon and, well, and getting, getting better. Oh, I love that you're asking me questions. This is like the best <laughs> interview ever because really, truly, it's just a conversation. And um, what I, on this thread, what I believe is that we're driven to improve ourselves. And so if that means trying to become a better athlete, that's great because you got a taste of that and you got pissed off. So now you had this other thing that was like a little more anger to kind of drive you to say, yeah, I finished that marathon and now I'm going to do it faster. But you know, at some point we realize our limits or I may not get faster than X, Y, or Z. I recognize that some other people may be innately more talented, I guess. So take what you learned from it and move it forward. But it's that process when you're trying to improve yourself where you reach your lowest lows and your highest highs. And you've got to, the only way, in my opinion, that you move yourself forward is by failing and going through those really low periods. I was, I was thinking about this like a, People who are chronic dieters, the first plateau they hit, the first time that the scale reads backwards one or two pounds the way, you know, the wrong direction, they give up. And it's for athletes, we figure out that you, once you push through that first plateau or that down cycle, you do come back. You have to have faith in the system though, and you have to have faith in your body. So I think there's a lot of things at play here. Yeah, yeah. Also, though, you know, when you do something hard, um, let's say the first time you run a mile and how hard that is, well, then all of a sudden you run your first 5K and women, you know, finish and they're bursting into tears and they're, they say, that was so hard. But, I, but then they say, I did that. I did that. I did more than I ever believed I could do. Well, then they look ahead and they say, wow, you know, the sky is really the limit. They, they really get the, the uh, they're willing to pay that price. I mean, we are. I mean, I look back at some of the workouts and, and some of the hardships I went through, and you too, I know that. Um, 
And I'm thinking, you know, I'm not sure I could go back there again, <laughs> but I did it. And I always will have that to rely on. Also, I can remember, um, I remember in my early corporate days, I'm walking into, let's say, a very big, important meeting with very, very important, um, you know, senior management people. And I was just a very junior person, but and always the only woman. Okay. And they'd all kind of look at me like, oh, my God, you know, what is this girl going to be telling us? You know, what is she? Why is she here? Kind of looking those looks. Um, And I would say to myself, I ran the Boston Marathon and I was attacked in the race and I finished the race anyway. And you didn't. And I always had that in the back of my mind. And it gave me such strength. So anytime you've done something hard and somebody else hasn't done it, it really gives you a nice stiff spine. <laughs> it is. It's like your little secret weapon. It's and, a secret weapon. Yeah. And that bib was your superhero cape. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Should we talk was. about that bib? Yeah. Well, one of the questions that might lead into this a little bit is, I sometimes I look at you and people like you who are pioneers and who've really changed the world and continue to change it. And I think, do you feel like you have a, the weight of the world on your shoulders ever? Or do you yeah. just kind of keep chugging along? No, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I really do take it real seriously. And, and yeah, and right now, today even is the day you're catching me when I feel like the weight of the world is on my shoulders. You know, when, when you can see sometimes a million opportunities that are very, very important, but you know, um, you, you know, you've got this great vast field out there, but all you've got right, right now is a little watering can and and so sometimes and people are counting on you you and you as a business owner know this too you know you've got employees counting on you you've got customers waiting for things and it's you know you say oh my god how am I going to do it how are we going to get through so yeah and and running really helps me I fall back on the fact that you know things have been tougher than they are right now but yeah I do I take it seriously every day people also you know look up to us as role models many people do and um and you don't want to let them down and so when a little kid writes to you and says can I have an autograph or are you helping with my school report you know you don't have time to do it but you have to do it because that's the only time that kid may have a contact with you uh, or somebody like you and you they will remember this forever Uh, so those are big those are important things you know whether it's a U.S. State Department calling you for a big offer assignment or it's a kid writing a, a paper. You know, how are you going to make that decision? You know, you, you, sometimes you can't make it, but you try to do it all, even if it means staying up all night. That's true. <laughs> which, which I think you and I both do. You know, I, hey, you have, you have a little girl. Um, I, I, I on purpose did not have children because I just felt I couldn't do the things I needed to do if I had children of my own. How you, as a strong athlete, businesswoman, head of a company, manage with a child is just one of the great, amazing things. Um, I, I really salute you, and I think we should have a discussion someday about how that possibly can happen, how you manage well, without killing yourself. <laughs> I, I totally um, respect that uh, statement, and yet at the same time, we sort of create space in our lives for what's important. And it's funny, I have on my notes here that I wanted to talk to you about men, I thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and oh, you know, okay. what's really funny is 
And the reason I bring this up is because a lot of people be like, I've got two kids. Oh, I've got three, including my husband, which I think is sort of derogatory, but also kind of funny. And, you know, we're all caretakers in this world. And um, what I do remember is, so Catherine, you have also written numerous books, amazing books. And what I love about your writing is that you're very transparent and real and people really relate to you. When I got your book, um, I read it. I sent you a big long email, just like those little kids do. And it was like, I can relate to this, these, even these struggles within your relationship and your marriage. And I mean, we're speaking not, you're in New Zealand right now. Um, you're married for the second time to the love of your life, but you know, it took, it took a lot to get there. Right. So I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Any advice you have on managing relationships through what you've learned? I bet you our our listeners would love that. Sure. And actually, I'm living with the love of my life and it's my third marriage. See, I am transparent. Um, Third time lucky. (laughs) (laughs) And you can make all the jokes you want about, you know, I was on a catch and release program or whatever. Um, the, the reality is, is that my first two marriages, of course, are absolutely heartbreaking. And, you know, sometimes you make decisions really um, because you're immature or because you get swept up in something that you can't get out of. Um, in terms of my first two relationships, uh, the first one, uh, I was ma- I married the hammer thrower in the, uh, who, who hit the official in the Boston Marathon and, 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 and was the gallant who saved me um, in the race, okay? And so it, it sounds like a romantic story, but it was really a very horrible relationship because he was an incredibly talented athlete but wouldn't work hard. He wouldn't train hard. Um, he felt that because he was talented, the world owed him, you know, um, victories and and and, and um, compliments. Whereas because I was not talented, I worked very hard. So it was a tortoise and hare relationship, and I, um, I the tortoise became better and more famous and it was intolerable for him and I felt so sorry for him because all he had to do was go out and train he had all the goods in the world I had never met an athlete like that I had never met somebody who was a natural talent who was an Olympic potential and he frittered it away and it broke my heart um and finally, when he you know, just finally couldn't get out, off his ass and do anything, I had to leave because it was dragging me down. And, um, I, and, and life was moving on, and it was presenting opportunities um, beyond us. So I had to go. Uh, the second relationship was a typical bounce-back kind of relationship that many of us fall into. Um, and being a marathon runner and a person who had overcome many, many difficult things and was Mrs. Fix-It, you know, I can take that negative and turn it into incredible positive. I can turn, uh, you know, women not being even official in the Boston Marathon into getting them into the Olympic Games type of person to to falling madly in love and infatuated with a a, a wild-eyed, dark um, uh, opera singer (laughs) who smoked and drank and in fact I thought this was all very exciting and charming Um, and he was an alcoholic and so you think oh well he's just having fun and it's not serious but alcoholism is extremely serious Um, and he was he was crazy and abusive and um, and you think you can fix it see and you start taking it on yourself to, to to fix things that you can't 
fix. So no amount of help, no amount of counseling would, would solve this situation. And finally, as they told me in Al-Anon, um, you know, you see what it's doing to him, but you're not seeing what it's doing to you. And then you look at yourself and you say, I'm drowning here. Um, and you know, there's, there's two people going underwater and I've, you know, I've got to save myself if I'm going to get through and live. And so I had to leave. And so that was a shocker in that, you know, I couldn't actually save this situation. And I vowed I was never going to get married again. That was it. That was, I'm going to have wonderful affairs. I'm going to see wonderful guys. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to dig into my career. And I did. I lost myself in my career fabulously. I mean, I just did amazing hard work. I could stay at the office till one o'clock in the morning. And then all of a sudden you meet somebody who just sweeps you off your feet. And Roger Robinson did. I mean, I fell madly in love with him instantly because he was a wonderful athlete. He was balanced. He was egalitarian. He was um, a wonderful writer. He was smart as hell. He just had all the goods. And I thought, I mean, this is just too good to be true. And the, the fly in the ointment was that um, I lived in New York and he lived in New Zealand. <laughs> and so people said, you're doing it again. You're making the wrong decision. And I said, he's the right guy. And they said, yes, but he's geographically undesirable. You can't <laughs> do it. You can't do it. And I said, why can't we do this? We're tough marathon runners, both of us. We can figure it out. And what we figured out is that somehow we would cut back on money and our lives in each country and live in both countries so that he would have his life and his career in New Zealand and I would be here with him then and I would have my life and my career in New York and he would be with me then. Um, and the consequences for 30 years, we've been happier than you could ever imagine. We spend um, our major household expenses, airfare. <laughs> we drive a 14-year-old Honda Civic. <laughs> we have modest homes, but we have each other, and we have an incredible life in two different countries. Now, it takes a lot of work. That sounds very glamorous. It takes so much work. You miss so many opportunities. You miss heartbreaking things. You miss things like somebody in the family is dying and you can't get there in time. Those are the things that are, are, are really tough. Um, but we have each other um, and we have a great relationship. And uh, I can't even imagine anything in my life without this man. It's unbelievable. Uh. He's just everything to me. So, um, yeah, but, you know, we both paid a price for it, too. And we worked very hard. So um, you do. You but, do. But, and it's, it's, so there you go. That's men. <laughs> oh my gosh. And we could probably keep going on this and many other topics. And you know, I encourage anyone listening to buy Catherine's books, all of them. Um, the book Marathon Woman really uh, is where I connected right off the bat. But there's, I mean, she's amazing and you can get so much more of this good stuff in there. <laughs> um, so you know what? I was going to say, our, our run is going a little long today, so if you have another 10 minutes or so, we need to talk about 261 Fearless and what you're doing now. Yeah, you know, here's another story that is amazing. You know, just when you say, I'm never going to do that again, or that era is over and I have a sense of accomplishment, etc. Life throws you the most amazing things. My bib number that the official tried to throw off of me in the Boston Marathon, tried to pull off of me in the Boston Marathon, 
throw me out of the race was bib number 261. And that it was just digits. It didn't mean anything to me. And about five years ago, all of a sudden, women began writing to me and emailing me and sending me pictures of themselves in a race with, with you know, their, their New York City Marathon bib on the front. But on the back, they were all wearing 261 or they were inking their arms with 261 um, because it made them feel fearless. They kept using this word. It makes me feel fearless. Wait. That Wait, were that they literally, they were tattooing their arms, 261? Well, that's what I was going to say next is they were inking them. But then when people started getting tattoos, honest to God tattoos with 261, I suddenly had to take this coincidental number and this event seriously. I talked to some friends of mine and um, together they, we said, they actually told me. Because I kept saying, oh, this is an interesting coincidence. They said, no, it's more than that. It's a very, very powerful sign that these people are really reaching out to you, Catherine. And they are wanting to tell you that you have changed their lives and you have made them feel fearless. And they're wanting to share this. That's why they're communicating. So they want to share it also with other women. And I said, well, what do we do next? (laughs) And they said, well, we can do a business or we can do a movement. Oh, we can do a nonprofit movement or charity. And in the end, what we decided to do is use this movement of communication with women and the sense of fearlessness and empowerment and make it a nonprofit charity, a 501c3, um, where we help them become fearless. Not just talk about it, but do a series of training programs, of clubs, where like-minded women can gather, train together, run together, um, communicate with each other, uh, of, of merchandise, as, as we did with Skirt Sports, um, where we um, uh, uh, really communicate also using the tools that are available to us through the Internet. And this is where age really was catching up with me, that, that a younger generation helping form this this nonprofit would understand the variations and the power of the internet where somebody of my age was only just beginning to catch on to it and we are in the process now thanks to um, a, a, a major sponsor that we have just signed last week I can't announce it yet because they're getting ready to make a global announcement a major sponsor is going to underwrite um, a lot of the foundation especially the creation of a major website where women from around the world in different languages can communicate to each other, share their stories of fearfulness and fearlessness, and bring other women into the movement. Often we say, you know, it's really nice to know that you're not alone out there. And many, many nights running alone in the dark for many years, I felt that I was quite alone. And how nice it would be to know if, you know, somebody... Nearby or in another part of the world, all I had to do is go click on and I have a friend. So that's, that's what we're going to be doing. But the heart and soul of 261 Fearless with this communication is actually going to be as much as possible the personal touch. And the personal touch comes from creating a club in your own area where you get together once a week. You put all the stuff about the kids in your job and your grumpy husband aside and you're out there having fun together, not necessarily training to, you know, run the New York City Marathon, but just maybe getting out and running, skipping rope together, if you see what I mean, having fun, sharing 
you know, your joy and your success and just shedding the stresses um, and becoming empowered just by the community and by the movement. So that's what 261 Fearless is all about. It's growing like crazy. Um, we have a whole series of clubs and training programs already very, very actively going in Europe. Um, and we're only held up a little in the U- U.S. with some insurance issues and nonprofit issues. But those are very, very soon um, going to be done. And we are starting. We've already had our first major training session in New York in October. And we're going to have um, three coming up very, very soon, the spring, the summer, and early autumn. So good stuff is really happening with 261 Fearless. And so check us out, 261fearless.org. I, okay, couple things. You're, yeah. You said you're 69 years old and you've done so much in your life and you are now starting a whole nother organization and it's more than an organization. I mean, I get running is the heart of it or where it started, but it's, it way transcends running. So what is driving you to do this now? Is it just that, that weight of the world on your shoulders or for maybe there's a better way to say it? Like you just are still in your life feeling compelled to keep women moving forward? Well, let me tell you one thing, and it's not, it is not financial, because I have spent my entire life savings um, and <laughs> on this. It's gone. You know, I was getting ready to get a new kitchen and a new front porch and maybe a new car, and guess what? Gone. <laughs> um, because the legal stuff is, is really hard at first. What, but what compels me, and I'll tell you, I mean, I really had to get a little help on this, because um, uh, I, I feel terribly responsible you know, if people are coming to you and they're saying you've changed my life and, and you can see how we can change lives either right next door to you there in Indianapolis or in Saudi, you know, if you have an opportunity to do that, I feel that's what we're here for. You know, that, you know, you know, it'd be great to retire and plant petunias and, and go lie on the beach or write another book, which is, you know, all of which I'd love to do sometime. But, um, you know, I'm a responsible person. And if if sort of something happens like that, I feel like I have to pick it up and, and make it happen. Yeah. I mean, there's great joy in changing lives and, and creating um, opportunities. Yes, that's compelling. But really, I think it's a sense of responsibility to make it happen. Um, what I'm really also very anxious to do is I'm, I want to pass that on to a great team. There are women out there who have been coming to us who want to work for 261 Fearless, who are incredible. There are 260 of them right now who are ambassadors, I think, who would jump off the Empire State Building for us. And, of course, what's hard is asking them to work for no money. Um, and, and hopefully someday that we will have – we're never going to have a lot because it's a charity. But we uh, can help maybe make stipends to people for helping us to get this going. Um but, uh, you know, I'm, what I'm really hoping is to be able to move it on to this next generation who will have a legacy that's going to last them the rest of their lives. Um, and then they can pass that on and be a legacy for another generation. Um, I felt my legacy was, was being a major player and getting the women's marathon into the Olympic Games. But now I'm realizing that this is going to be the bigger legacy. But the, the, this will not reach 
this was the hard thing for me to come to grips with is this isn't going to even reach fruition until after I'm dead. And so what I now must be compelled and responsible to do is to pass that on to another generation who will really, really do things I could never have done because they're going to have the youth and the technology and the wherewithal to, to make it happen. That's quite exciting. And, you know, for somebody who, who frankly, has is, is never had her own children, that's a great way to feel like you've got kids, you know, that they're going to do something really neat. <laughs> that's very true. And, I mean, it's pretty crazy to think that we're living through all these different, I guess, revolutions in the world. And now I might almost call this one the virtual revolution. And uh, you, you've lived through a few cycles of business and life and it's tough to keep up. And so I applaud that effort for you to see beyond yourself. Um, you know, what hits me too is, uh, even just how, let's just talk about this for a minute. How can people get involved today with 261 Fearless? Okay. How they can get involved today is they can go on the online and, um, and see what it's about and become a member of 261 Fearless just as an individual member. So um, also you can donate. Also you can volunteer. You, you, there, there's a way to contact through our website. Um, we're going to be announcing another uh, ambassador uh, uh, opportunity to become an ambassador this year, probably in a few months. Uh, and when that opens, we would love you to apply to become an ambassador, spread the word. And um, yeah. If you have some unique skills and you want to volunteer, you know, tell us what you like and we're going to try to try to make you become a part and ha- make this happen. Okay, so I think it's safe to say go on 261fearless.org and sign on to Catherine's and 261 Fearless email list because then you will get all of this information right when it happens. You'll be the first to know. You can get your applications in. And, um, and you want to support this movement because this is about taking women forward. Absolutely. And we'd love to have you with us. So let's, let's wrap it. We're at like four miles now. We went over our 5k. It's awesome. We could go, like you said, 31 miles. I'm sure we could keep talking. (laughs) So I want to finish with one, maybe one bigger kernel from you. One little nugget on, uh, the name of this podcast is run this world and people listening are, they're hoping to get something that will help them run their worlds more positively. So if there is one thing that comes to mind, one little nugget, big or small, that you want to pass on to our listeners, let's have it. Yes. The nugget is, is that talent and capability is everywhere. It only needs an opportunity. So wherever you are, in particular with your own kids, with any kid you know, with uh, even a kid in the street, give them an attaboy or girl, and give them the opportunity to do something, empower them by saying, hey, I know you can do that. That's great. You can do it. Run a mile a day. That'll change their lives. I love it. Well, I fully agree with that point. And Catherine, thank you so much. I miss you. I hope I get to see you soon. I'm so proud of you. I respect you so much for everything you've done in this crazy world of ours and everything you're still going to do as you move forward. So thank you for what you bring to us as women runners and just as human beings. Thank you so much, Nicole. And for you, everything you've done, the world thanks you too. All right. Until next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
Wow, that was amazing. As you can see, Catherine has a genuine drive to help women go forward in life. She understands the power of what she did for us. She takes her responsibility seriously and she's paying it forward through her lifetime and beyond. If you feel moved by her mission, which I'm sure you do, you can take action by becoming a member of 261 Fearless now. Go to 261fearless.org to learn more about this. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's show, Fearless and Free with Katherine Switzer. Be sure to share it with your friends and follow me, Nicole DeBoom, on Facebook and Instagram. I want to hear your thoughts, feedback, and any suggestions you have for future guests, people who have a big vision and are making change in the world. Well, you know what time it is. It's time to run this world in a bigger and better way than you have before. So have a great day, and we'll see you next time on Run This World.